morning in our series in the book of Acts. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 4. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you can find that on page 1160. Uh, last week, we considered uh, Peter and James's interaction with the council, the most powerful, the Sanhedrin, the most powerful religious and political leaders of the nation. This week, we're going to see the immediate aftermath for and the response of the community of the faithful to Peter and John's experience of their arrest and their trial and the whole, whole nine yards. Along the way, excuse me, along the way, I hope we'll see some principles for how we should think about and respond to the Lord's hard providences in our lives. Before we jump in, of course, we need uh, to ask the Holy Spirit to be present with us. So if you're able now, please stand with me while I pray. Remain standing as I read from Acts chapter 4. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to your word because only in your word do we find truth. Only in your word can we learn who you are in ways that we could not possibly have reasoned out for ourselves. You have spoken through your creation and we can learn much about you through that. But only in your word can we find most clearly and fully presented your character and your truth and our salvation. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray as we open and study your word this morning that you would send your spirit on us to open our eyes to see your truth, restrain our sin that we might humbly submit to it, encourage us, build us, strengthen us in our faith, make us pleasing servants to you. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Acts chapter 4. I'm starting in verse 23. This is God's Word. When they, Peter and John, were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. John Piper used an illustration once uh, of a giant dam hydroelectric power plant con under construction. Think of maybe the Aswan Dam, the Aswan High Dam on the Nile. 375 feet high, 11,000 feet across. 850 meters in width across the base of it. It's an enormous thing. Uh, Egypt's president, Nassar Nassar, announced the plans for the construction in 1953, and the construction continued until it was completed in 1970. 
And in 1971, there was a grand dedication ceremony and the 12 turbines with their, and this is, I'm, I made checked on this to make sure this was a correct number, 10 billion kilowatt hour uh, capacity were unleashed with enough power to light every city in Egypt. During the 17 or 18 years of construction, the Nile River was not completely stopped. It couldn't be. Uh, even as the reservoir was being filled behind the dam, part of the river was allowed to flow past. The people who lived downstream from the, the dam depended on the river. It was their life. They drank it. They washed in it. They watered their crops. They turned their mill wheels with it. They sailed on it in the moonlight and wrote songs about it. It was life for them. But on the day when the reservoir poured through the turbines, a power was unleashed that spread far beyond the few folks who lived downriver, and it brought possibilities that they had only dreamt of. The giving of the Spirit at Pentecost is a little like the dedicatory opening of the Aswan High Dam. Before Pentecost, the river of God's Spirit existed. The Spirit was at work, and it was blessing the people of Israel and was their very life. But after Pentecost, the, Spirit, the power of the Spirit spread out to light the whole world. Even those who had been familiar with the Lord and His work before now experienced His work, experienced Him in a new way. None of the benefits enjoyed in the days before Pentecost went away. They, were, they remained. But 10 billion kilowatts, as it were, was added to enable the church to take the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, to every tongue and tribe and nation. Now that is certainly true. It is a beautiful promise and it's a beautiful reality. But it can, at times, be hard for us to remember in the midst of all the world throws at us. Russia has been waging a full-scale invasionary land-grab war against Ukraine for a year and a half now. There have been ongoing food shortages all over the world. There have been shootings all over this country over and over again in families and stores and schools and churches and, and all of the places. We're gearing up for yet another ugly, awful, society-destroying election cycle spread out over the next 15 months, maybe more. The news, wherever you get it, is uniformly awful, telling us over and over and over again, you should be terrified. You should be angry. And let's be honest, if we're paying attention to the plight of our brothers and sisters around the world... It doesn't get better. In some ways, it actually gets a little worse. It's not going to get reported much, but China is, is, has begun, again, more cracking down on churches. China's now, and this was in the news just the last couple of days, now going to ban any religious organization with ties to the West at all and force any of the remaining churches that exist to deliver patriotic education, effectively making the church, making Christ's church worship at the altar of state socialism and proclaim the glories of China rather than the glories of Christ. With all this going on in the world, it would be easy for us to wonder where God is. To wonder if the Holy Spirit is maybe taking a vacation. Wonder if perhaps He isn't as in control of things as we might have thought. 
We've been reared in a cultural moment, in a culture that demands hard work from us, that declares confidently that there is no such thing as a free lunch. Nothing, you don't get anything for nothing. Our culture revels in the thought that God helps those, you know the rest of it, who help themselves. That's right. If we want a good result, the only option is to work hard and earn it. That's it. That's the only choice. Now, obviously, there are many areas of life where that is a, a good, uh, where that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's good to have the habit of doing our work as, as hard as, you know, to work as hard as we can, as, as though we are working directly for Jesus. That we live as though our job, whether it's teaching high school or working in a factory or in a hospital or as a stay-at-home parent, whatever, that our job is done to God first and foremost. With diligence, the best we're able to do it, regardless of whether our employer knows anything about Jesus or not. That's a good approach to much of life. But here's the thing. When we apply that attitude, that approach of hard work is the only way, when we apply that to our faith, we end up in worlds of trouble. When we make our hope about what we can do to please God, what we can earn, when we make our hope what we can do, we very quickly become afraid that the enemies of Christ will win. Unless I take action, unless I fix it, unless I solve it. Because it all depends on me. God needs me to combat His enemies directly so that His plan can succeed. Our response to everything tends to be do something and do it now. Get on it. Work hard. Again, that may be appropriate in many things. But faith in Christ is fundamentally different from every other experience in the world. It is unique. And so our response cannot be the same as it is for everything else. Or indeed for anything else. We want God to tell us that the proper response to threats to the faith, threats to the church, the proper response is for us to be active politically or active in the military or to lobby or to campaign or to write new laws, to advertise, to boycott, whatever. You fill in the blank. We desperately want to do something. But that is not the response of faith. It is not faith that sees the nation's rage against God and responds, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to rectify the injustice. I'm going to correct their raging. And I must do it because God can't or won't. God expects me, needs me to save him from the kings of the earth who have set themselves against him. Do you see how ridiculous that is? How poisonous that must be to true faith? True faith acknowledges that the Spirit works in and through His people, but trusts that the 10 billion watts of the Holy Spirit is going to do whatever He needs to do to get done, to defend His own name. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He'll do it Himself. Faith says God is sovereign, completely in control, and God is good. The nations will certainly rage against Him, but because He is sovereign, because He is good, I will trust Him to handle these arrogant people who are defying, not me, are defying Him. I will trust Him to do it. 
Now, I suspect we all would agree with that, at least in theory, right? When, especially when I put it that bluntly, we're all like, well, yeah, obviously, that's what we're supposed to say. Yes, Jesus is the answer. But we don't live in a theoretical world. What does this look like in actual practice? I think our passage this morning provides at least an example of God's people actively trusting the Lord in the face of resistance from the world. Peter and John had done exactly what God called them to do and what we all hoped that we would do, proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus and the salvation that comes through faith in Christ alone. They were detained and put on trial for preaching, and yet even during the trial, they proclaimed the same message. They boldly proclaimed the good news of Jesus to the council. Of course, God arranged the trial so that nothing worse than threats came from it. Still, it was a trial before the most powerful governing body in the land and threats from the same group, the same council that had Jesus crucified on trumped-up charges just a couple of months before. We talked last time about their bold humility before the council. This morning we're looking at the aftermath. I think that what they did after facing the council is actually even more encouraging in a couple of ways. At the most basic, it's encouraging because they didn't feel any more powerful than I feel or than you feel. I think most of us, all of us probably, would really struggle to stand up and proclaim Jesus in that situation. Now, we like to think, right, because we've been weaned on, you know, the, the big hero movies, whatever, Marvel movies. We'd like to think, I would be the hero, I would stand up. But the reality is we don't know until we're in that situation. We would like to think that we will, and maybe we would. But until you're in that situation, we just don't know. And they didn't find the power to stand before that council. They didn't find that in themselves. They didn't find it in aphorisms. They didn't find it in any other human being. Instead, what did they do? They immediately ran to the power of the Holy Spirit. The apostles, Peter and John, they were closer to Jesus than any of us are. And they ran to the Holy Spirit. They ran to prayer. And so this encourages us to pray. If the apostles needed the Holy Spirit through prayer to stand before the world, how much more do we? We agree with that. But it also encourages us by showing us how they prayed. We often struggle because we know we're supposed to pray. We all know that that's part of the Christian life we're supposed to be praying. We believe that God works through prayer, but we don't really know what to say when we pray. How do we talk to God? So it's helpful and it's encouraging to take this in one sense as a model of prayer, giving us a structure, a format, guide, however you want to call it, to help us think through how do we approach the Lord in prayer. Taking this in reverse order, let's look at what they actually said in prayer and then we'll look at some of the broader context. It's easy when we pray, it is easy for us to act as though God is some sort of cosmic gumball machine. Insert request, get response. La-di-da, here we go. Maybe for a particularly complex or difficult request, I'll add a promise of future good behavior so that God will understand that I really mean it and that maybe I've actually earned this thing that I'm asking for. God, if you will fill in the blank, whatever it is for me, then I will give you this percentage of my income. I'll go to church every week. I won't cuss anymore ever. Whatever it is we think will buy God off. That's fundamentally flawed understanding of prayer. It's fundamentally a flawed understanding of God himself. When we approach God in that fashion, we are treating him as a trust fund rather than a father. 
as a servant rather than the Lord. When the disciples pray, before they get to their requests, before they get to what they're asking Jesus to do, first, verse 24, they talk about who God is. Sovereign Lord, he is, he, they, they pray. The word there that is translated sovereign Lord is literally the root word that we, from which we get the word despot. Uh, though it, in Greek it doesn't have the negative connotations that despotic does in English. Um, it carries all of the strength of an absolute ruler in complete control of everything, with authority over me and you and everybody and everything else. They begin their prayer by confessing that God indeed does have the power to answer their prayer. That he has the power to do what they need him to do. And then they give one of the reasons for that belief. He created everything. He is able to control everything because he created it all. Everything depends entirely on him for existence, so he is able to accomplish all of their requests. When we pray, it is good and it is, excuse me, it is wise and helpful to start with a proclamation of God's identity, of his characteristics. Not because we think he might have forgotten who he is, right? He knows who he is, but we forget. We, for, we forget. We are prone to treat him as a gumball machine, and so we should begin our prayers by acknowledging that he is Lord over me and everything else. We do not come to God as an equal asking a favor. Still less do we come to him as a master or owner giving him an order. We come as slaves to our master. A righteous master who loves us well, but we are slaves nonetheless. Now here in the West, that's a very unusual, maybe uncomfortable position for us to be in. So it's all the more important that we remind ourselves again and again and again, God doesn't work for me. I am not his boss. I am not his employer. I'm not in charge here. He is God, and I am not. Now, that may sound obvious, maybe even superfluous, but we're prone to forget that. We're prone to forget that fact, maybe more than any other in the whole world. He is God, and I am not. From Adam and Eve right the way down, we act as though we are in charge here, and he works for us. Now, we wouldn't say that, That's kind of the way we act, right? It's good to remind ourselves of who God is right up front. We bring Him our requests because He is able to accomplish them and because we are not able to accomplish them. And then they praise Him not just as the one who can fulfill their requests, but as the one who keeps His promises. He will always accomplish what He said He will do. Always. The event in all of history that seemed most to have thwarted the plan of God, the death of God's anointed one, the Christ, was prophesied nearly a thousand years ahead of time, before it happened. This is in Psalm 2, which is what they quote here in verses 25 and 26. They are very clear that this psalm, though written by David, written down by David, was actually God's word. God, through the mouth of our father David, said by the Holy Spirit. God is not surprised by the events of our lives. We may not know what's coming next year or even later today, 
But God does because he planned all of it. And his plan is perfect. They praise God for his identity as sovereign Lord and as creator. They praise him for keeping his promises to his people. There's a lot of promises of prophecies that God has given his people that the disciples could have listed, right? He's kept all of them. Why did they choose this one? This particular prophecy is actually intimately connected with the request that they're going to make. So they, as they praise him for keeping his word, they are locating themselves within God's plan and purpose. They're reminding themselves that their situation is a part of God's plan, even as they ask God to be at work in that situation. They're asking him to fulfill his word to them, even as he has done so many times in the past. And then... Having located, having identified God and locating themselves in God's purpose and plan, then flowing out of their acknowledgement of their place in God's plan, they come to their requests. But their requests are not at all what we would expect. In their place, I suspect we would have been praying that God would smite the leadership of the land, that he would eliminate the persecution, that he would get rid of the threat and let his people live in peace. That God would institute governors who love Jesus and who lead the nation to love Jesus. That would have been our prayer. And there's nothing wrong with that prayer. We would pray that God would make the persecution stop so that we could live at peace with our neighbors. Again, perfectly fine to pray that. But it's interesting that that's not what the disciples pray. The closest they get for, to asking for God to prevent the persecution is when they say, Lord, Look on their threats. Consider their threats. Be aware of their threats. In the unstated part, be aware of their threats and act on the basis of your awareness. But what they make explicit is this. In, the, in light of their threats, make us bold. Make us bold. Not end the injustice of this, not turn their hearts to you and thus end the persecution, just make us bold. Lord, in light of what you're doing in the world today, allowing your people to be persecuted, allowing your son to be killed in light of your plan, verse 28, whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place, in light of all of that, slot us in. Put us in the game, coach. Use us as part of your plan. Make us bold to proclaim your truth. Let us not be conquered by these threats, by these fears. Even if we are to die, let it be proclaiming your, your truth. Make us bold to speak your word while you accomplish your purposes. Now, hang on a second. Weren't they already bold? Didn't we just do that? We just read that. Hadn't they just proclaimed the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection, not merely in the temple, but actually to the Sanhedrin directly, the ones who literally actually ordered Jesus' death. And they stood in front of that council and said, you ordered Jesus' death, and here's what God was doing. Hadn't they already been bold? Why are they praying for something that they already have? What is going on here? Well, here's the short answer. They don't have it. 
they don't have enduring boldness. As one, commenta- one commentator put it this way, those who had spoken with such courage and freedom needed to have their courage renewed to proclaim the gospel in the face of recent threats. Such boldness is a divine gift, not a moral virtue to be acquired by repeated exercise. Christians who have been bold in one context can easily be intimidated in another unless they seek God's enabling. Hear that. Boldness is a divine gift, not a moral virtue that you can get better at the more you do it. Because if it were a moral virtue, it would be something that you do and can boast in. Boldness is a gift from God that we need in every situation and so we must pray for it again and again and again. We need our courage renewed and restored. Boldness in Christ is a gift from God. So they pray to have their courage renewed for more boldness to continue to proclaim Christ's finished work. Now we shy a little bit away, we shy away a little bit from verse 30 in our day because asking for miracles feels a little presumptuous, might feel like that's not how God works anymore. He did that with the apostles. We don't do that stuff now. And we might even have a good theological rationale for not asking for miracles. But if you look past the miraculous part, what are they actually asking for? What is it that the miracles, what was the point of the healings? Was it just, hey, look, we can do really cool stuff. Check this out. No, of course not. They're asking God to confirm the preaching of the gospel in a way that is unignorable and unimpeachable, that, it, that only God could confirm the gospel in this way. Give signs and wonders so that people will know that you have blessed the word that we are bold to proclaim so that people will know that this is your truth god but even more than that it is a plea that god would do the work the whole prayer is a proclamation that the disciples are not able to accomplish anything and that god is able So when they ask him to confirm the word with signs and wonders at heart, what they're asking is for him to make his word fruitful, to change hearts and minds as only he can. The Holy Spirit is the only one able to affect change in people's hearts, to make people see and believe the truth of the gospel. This prayer is a full-voiced acknowledgement that I am not the Holy Spirit. I can't change your heart. I can't, look, I, I would like to think I'm a great preacher. I'm moderate to middling, right? But even if I were the world's greatest preacher ever, I still couldn't change your heart. No matter how eloquent I was, if I were the reincarnation of John Chrysostom combined with Charles Spurgeon, I could not, by my words, change your heart if the Holy Spirit isn't doing it. And neither can you. You can't make people believe the gospel. No matter how bold or smart or well-spoken you are, you cannot convince people by great rhetoric or better examples or anything else. Only God can change hearts. That is His work. So they pray for boldness 
They pray that God would use them, but they pray that He would do the work because that's His job. There's a while when I was in college that I was involved with Campus Crusade, uh, and along the way, of course, I went to several of their retreats and conferences and things. Uh, at one of them, my entire, my head blew up at an offhand comment. We'd been, they structured this week-long retreat so that one of the afternoons we would all go out in twos and threes and, and just talk to people about Jesus and share the gospel. Uh, and I, you know, I'd been pretty down. I'd been pretty d- discouraged by the whole day because I hadn't seen anyone come to faith. I had really only had the opportunity to sit and chat with one person, and we talked for a couple hours, but only really talked to one person and prayed together at the end, and it wasn't even for salvation, just for her. And I felt like a failure because I hadn't brought someone to Christ by my eloquence. I was feeling my vinegar, whatever, and, and it just and it failed. I failed. And then as we were that evening kind of doing a debrief in small group, one of the other guys in our group said, it was a good thing that success in evangelism didn't depend on him, that it was totally up to God, because his day had been even worse than mine. He hadn't had more than a three- or four-minute conversation total the entire day. But, he said, success in evangelism is speaking the truth and leaving the results to God. Speaking the truth and leaving the results to God, and my head exploded. And that is no less true today than it was in Acts 4 or at that conference that I, was at, that I was at. Success as a Christian is being faithful and bold to speak the truth about God with our words and with our actions. We are to be people of the word and people of love, of care for others. Word and deed. Speak the truth about God with our actions and our words and leave the results to Him. That doesn't mean that we're never going to face persecution. If we're doing it right, if we're faithfully proclaiming God's truth, then we will be speaking against the flow of culture, our culture or any other. We will make people uncomfortable. Nobody wants to hear that they're sinners, and that's kind of an important part of the gospel. Some people, maybe a lot of people, will hate us for it, will look down on us, will see us as fools. But the results are God's business, not mine. He is God, and I am not. So I have to trust Him to handle the results, whatever they are. And when we pray, our prayer should look a lot like this. You are sovereign, Lord, totally in control of everything. The results are up to you. In fact, you planned the results before you created time. And your plan cannot be thwarted at all, ever, no matter what. Because of that, Lord, consider your enemies, how your enemies are attacking you, not me. Even though I may be the one standing here, your enemies are attacking you, Lord. And as a result, make me bold to proclaim your truth. And then confirm your truth by causing it to accomplish your good purpose and plan, even as you have promised that your word would not return void but it will go out and do what you send it to do. Prayer is not about convincing God to do something other than He's already planned. 
Prayer is not, let me say that again, prayer is not about convincing God to do something other than He'd already intended to do. Prayer is about changing my heart to get my heart in line with God's existing good plan. Because He is sovereign and because He is good, because He is faithful to accomplish what He has promised to accomplish, and because He is at work within us, making us more like Him, therefore, because all of that, we can trust Him in prayer. And indeed, we can trust Him in the whole of our lives to accomplish His good plan for us. Prayer is how we submit to Him, how we submit to His plan. It is letting go of my plan. And therefore, letting go of the pressure to perform that goes along with it being my plan and submitting to Him and His plan. Because He is God, and I am not, and neither are you. We are not the Holy Spirit. And brothers and sisters, that is a balm to our souls that He is God and we are not. Amen. Let's pray to Him now. Lord Jesus, we delight in your work, in your purpose, in your plan, and we pray that you would glorify yourself.